Well, good morning. My name is Mike Holloway. I'm the church administrator here at Omaha Bible Church. And Pastor Pat has asked me to fill the pulpit while he's away this morning. So, we are going to turn our attention to Luke chapter 7. So, if you would turn to Luke chapter 7 in your Bibles this morning. We will focus on the story of the anointing of Jesus' feet by a sinful woman. I was tempted to call this the weeping party crasher, um, but uh, that didn't seem to fit quite as well. If you've ever been to a, in a situation where um, people have shown up at a place where you didn't expect them, um, this, uh, this, this parable or this story will, uh, will, will have some familiarity to you. I remember about 20 years ago, I was in a, a small Baptist church, and uh, we had the Christian motorcycle gang show up for services that morning. And they came uh, all dressed in their leather and their chains and their bandanas. And they were, they were outfitted to the hilt. And uh, some folks in church weren't quite ready for that kind of fellowship that morning. But uh, we worked through that. But this morning we come to a story that is, is, is somewhat similar to that in, some, in many ways. Chapter 7 of Luke uh, actually begins with Jesus healing a Roman centurion's son. Jesus then performs a dramatic miracle when he raises a widow's son from the dead, one of the great miracles recorded in the Gospels. This is followed by Jesus performing many miracles in response to a question from John the Baptist, wanting to know if Jesus is the Messiah and concludes with the disciples of John the Baptist, the people and the tax collectors, welcoming Jesus and his message but the Pharisees and the scribes rejecting and refusing his message. All of this culminates with the question of verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? Follow along with me as I read our text this morning, beginning with Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not repay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning around toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, 
But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you this morning and we approach your word with humility. We ask, Father, that you would open our hearts to the truths of your scriptures that we would see who this Christ is, who Jesus is, that we would know, Father, that He is even the one who forgives sins. I pray, Father, that You would give me the words to speak so that I might faithfully proclaim Your Scripture this morning. I pray for Your people who are listening. I pray, Lord, that Your Word would pierce to the very heart of the matter for us that we would see the imperative, the need to love much and not love little. That we would look at ourselves, Father, and that we would be changed even this morning for our exposure to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. This Pharisee's name is Simon. We are told that in verse 40. Based on his actions described by Jesus in verses 44 to 46, Simon is not sympathetic to Jesus and his cause, although he does call him teacher. You see, Simon had invited Jesus to share a meal with him, likely to entrap Jesus or find some reason to accuse him, which the Pharisees had already tried to do earlier in the book of Luke, and matter of fact, you will find that throughout all of the Gospels. Jesus, for his part, is clearly reaching out to the Pharisees and reaching out to his associates as well. I am amazed that Jesus continually comes back over and over to reach out to those who would be perceived as his enemies. He engages them. Sometimes, especially later in his ministry, when it's apparent that they are seeking his death, you get passages such as Matthew 23, which is one of the harshest passages in all of ancient literature, where Jesus says over and over to you, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs. They're clean on the outside, but they're filthy on the inside. But here, Jesus accepts the invitation to the Pharisee's house. He is reaching out to the Pharisee. He is engaging the Pharisee. That brings us to verse 37. And the woman. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. You say, well, that could describe all of us, right? Well, yes, it could. But this has a special meaning. This is a very kinder and gentler way to say, this woman is likely a prostitute. She's a town prostitute 
in the city where Jesus is speaking. So behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It was the custom of the day to eat at a low table where you would recline on cushions on the floor. You notice it says Jesus was reclining at table. What they would do is they would lean on their left side while they're reclining on these cushions, kind of like couch cushions on the floor, and they would eat with their right hand, and their feet would be out behind them while they would sit at this low table. She brings an alabaster flask. Alabaster is a soft, translucent stone in which you carried a costly or expensive perfume. Very common for women of this day to carry a perfume. Keep in mind, daily showers and baths weren't the order of the day. Water was scarce. You had to haul it around, and it wasn't heated. So perfumes and oils were very common in this day. Well, you say, how did she get? How did this uninvited guest get into the Pharisee's house? Well, a dinner event such as this, a meal like this, where a Pharisee, a respected religious leader, would invite a guest, a guest to come to dinner, an honored guest to come to dinner, and conversation about the, the topics of the day, about the religious issues of the day would come up, people were allowed to come in and listen. They could be spectators. But clearly, she was not what somebody expected as a spectator. She was not welcome. She was not invited. She was a sinner of what the world would say is the worst kind. All of this, her appearance there, her presence, would be highly improper and inappropriate, but yet for her, it took a great deal of courage, commitment, to be in that situation, facing that kind of hostility. But she is there. And her behavior indicates that what is driving her there is her love and her gratitude for Christ. Now, the first time I mentioned to someone I was teaching on this, they said, oh, I remember that. That's, that's where Mary pours ointment on Jesus' head. Well, no, that's a different story. Okay? That's a story that occurs in Matthew, Mark, and John. And the events described there take place in a town called Bethany, which is very near Jerusalem. It's also took place very close or during the week when Christ was crucified. This event recorded in Luke 7 is a different event than that. Well, how do you know that? First of all, it doesn't happen in Bethany. It happens in Galilee. It's far removed from Jerusalem. It happens at least a year before the crucifixion of Christ. Also, whereas the woman in the story in Matthew, Mark, and John is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. This woman is unnamed, and she is described as a sinner. Also, you'll find in the other account, Jesus' head is anointed with oil. In this account, Jesus' feet are anointed with oil. And lastly, the incident in Luke, the purpose is totally different, and the lessons are totally different than the incident described in the other Gospels. So clearly we're talking about a different 
incident here. That brings us to verse 38. What does the woman do? Standing behind him, standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. She begins, or she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. It seems the woman is standing behind Jesus at the dinner. She's watching and listening to the conversation and she is overcome with emotion and begins weeping and decides to let her fear, tears fall on the feet of our Lord to wash them clean. Now, normally, in these days, the way of transportation was you walked. And the normal footwear for the day was sandals. And you didn't have paved roads. You didn't have nice sidewalks. You walked on dirt trails. Well, you can imagine what your feet looked like after you walked around on dusty dirt trails. They were dirty. They were filthy. And it was the custom of the day that if you were an honored guest, your feet would be washed. Well, Jesus' feet haven't been washed. And this woman decides she's now going to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. Now, she noticed she also is wiping his feet with her hair. This is also extremely out of the ordinary. This is not normal. A Jewish woman would never let her hair down in public. Yet here she has let her hair down, and she is using her hair to wipe the tears off of Jesus' feet. She is completely oblivious to the public reaction in the grip of her deep emotion at this point. This also explains the kissing of Jesus' feet, as there are examples of the kissing of the feet of specially honored rabbis in literature from the time. But it was far from normal. So this woman is operating far outside the norm. She would have made everybody in that room uncomfortable. Think of probably one of the nicest dinners you may have ever been to. Maybe it was a business dinner. But think of somebody coming into that room who was dressed totally inappropriately and started doing totally inappropriate things. What would you be thinking? I know what I'd be thinking. What's going on? Would somebody get this person out of here? This is totally unacceptable. That's the kind of a situation this woman is in. This is what her gratitude and love of our Lord has driven her to. She is not paying attention to the social conventions of the day. She is outside the norm. Now, it is likely Jesus had turned this woman from her sinful ways prior to this encounter. And this incident is an expression of her love and gratitude. It is not clear if she had met Jesus previous to this. She may have just been in a crowd, heard his teaching, and been so convicted that her life was changed. Or she may have had some unrecorded contact with Jesus that we don't know about. Quite honestly, we don't know for sure. But clearly, she came to this dinner with a purpose. Because when she heard Jesus was there, she went there. She wanted to be with Jesus. Well, what's the Pharisee's reaction? Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is 
and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. To the Jews, being touched by an unclean sinner was an abomination. And notice Simon says this to himself. He doesn't say this out loud. He doesn't say it to the person next to him at the table. He says it to himself. He's thinking this. This is his thought process at this point. And Simon either believes Jesus doesn't know who the woman is or he simply doesn't care. And in either case, Simon can't believe that Jesus is really a prophet from God. For if he were from God, he would refuse her odd but kind behavior towards him and send this woman of evil reputation and character packing immediately. You see, Simon is thinking Jesus is not from God. But that's the exact opposite of what Jesus had just showed the people. Just a little earlier in chapter 7. Back to chapter 7, verse 12. Same chapter, just probably the page before. Jesus raises a widow's son. We'll pick it up in verse 12. As he, Jesus, drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer, that's the, 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 the cot that the, the, the dead man was on, the beer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Notice the reaction, verse 16. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. The people are seeing what's happening, and they're drawing the conclusion that this is a man of God. Fear gripped them. They glorified God. What's Simon thinking? Well, this guy can't possibly be a prophet. Who have I invited into my house? Well, Jesus responds to Simon's thought. Verse 40. I like the way the scripture says it. And Jesus, answering, said to him. (laughs) Simon doesn't know it at this point. But Jesus is answering Simon's thought. Simon, if he listens to what Jesus is about to say is going to learn that this man is truly a prophet and even more than a prophet. See, Jesus knew what Simon had said. He knew what Simon had thought. And Jesus now tells a short parable. Keep in mind as we approach this parable that a parable almost always has one main point and one main point only. Be careful not to try to make every detail in a parable mean something. 
or as some have described it, don't try to make the parable walk on all fours. You'll miss the main point if you do that. So Jesus tells this very short parable in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. He freely forgave, he graciously forgave the debt of both. Well, you say, how much is 500 denarii? Probably not very much money. It's probably easy for this banker, this moneylender, to just cancel the debt. A denarii is a silver coin, Roman coin, and it was worth about one day's labor. So what you're talking about here is 500 days of labor, about two years of income. Now, think of what two years of income means to you. Probably about the size of a typical home mortgage in many cases. This is, they're talking about a big debt here. This is a lot of money. How would you like to get a call tomorrow morning, Monday morning, your banker's on the phone, he says, you know that hundred plus thousand dollars you owe me on your mortgage? It's canceled. Just forget it. You don't have to pay. What's the likelihood of that happening? It's not very likely, is it? I've had four houses that hasn't happened to me yet. Okay? This is a big debt. This is a big debt. Okay? And Jesus is contrasting this great big debt with this smaller debt. Matter of fact, the word that is used for canceling the debt, the, 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 the word cancel the debt, is the Greek word keroidzomai, which means an act of grace that willingly pardons without any requirement of merit or repayment. This is an act of kindness that prompts free and voluntary pardon. At the heart of this Greek word is the word charis that is translated consistently in our Bibles as grace. This moneylender is showing grace in forgiving these debts. That's the parable. That's all there is to it. Pretty short. But Jesus asked Simon a simple question at the end of verse 42. Now which of them will love him more? Will the one who had the 500 debt forgiven, will the one who had the huge debt forgiven love him more, or will the one who had the small debt forgiven love him more? Simon answered, verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Basically, Jesus says, you're right. You got it. Now, interesting the way Simon answers, isn't it? I suppose, okay? Simon's answer is one of suspicion. He's not being flippant or he's indifferent to the question, but rather he is cautious and reluctantly giving Jesus an answer that he likely realizes at this point will point the finger at himself because of the way he's responding to this woman because of the thoughts he's already had. Now in verses 44 to 46, 
Jesus responds to Simon even more. Jesus sets forth three sets of contrasts between the different actions of, or the, the indifferent actions of Simon and the love of this woman. Contrast number one, verse 44. Then turning around, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, notice Jesus turns towards the woman, he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Upon entering the house, Simon insulted Jesus by giving him no water for his feet, similar to us offering to take someone's coat, offering a guest a drink when they come into the house. It's a common and expected formality. But the woman, in contrast, humbled herself by coming to Jesus in an embarrassing fashion and in a very, very personal way, washed and dried his feet with her tears and her hair. Contrast number two, verse 45. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Upon entering the house, Simon did not welcome Jesus with the customary greeting of a kiss on the cheek. But the woman humbled herself and demonstrated her love for him by repeatedly, humbly, and embarrassingly, even unconventionally, kissing his feet. Contrast number three. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Upon entering his house, Simon did not honor Jesus by anointing his head with oil. Now you notice there's two different words here used, oil and ointment. Okay? A better translation for ointment is perfume. That's the way we think of it. Okay? Oil and perfume. Customarily, you would be anointed in coming to a home and to be honored in coming to a home by being anointed with common, cheap olive oil. Simon didn't even do that. Yet this woman comes with expensive perfume in an alabaster vial. Now Jesus dramatically brings this interaction to a close. By first speaking pointedly to Simon the Pharisee and then speaking words of comfort, forgiveness, and encouragement to the woman. He concludes his little speech with Simon by saying, Therefore I tell you, in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Notice, Jesus does not deny her sins are many. He admits, yes, she's a sinner. She has sinned often, and she has sinned in terrible ways. But by doing so, he just points out that no matter how great or how many the sins, God's grace through Christ can forgive them. I have had people tell me, I have sinned too badly. I cannot be forgiven. Oh, really? That's not what Jesus says. Though your sins are many, though they are dire, though they are ugly sins, 
The grace of God through Christ is sufficient for them. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus connects the parable of the two debtors to the sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee. Here is the point of the story. He who is forgiven a great deal He who has a great debt canceled will love greatly, will love much. In line with the words of verse 50, your faith has saved you, Jesus is saying her love is the proof that she had already been forgiven. The source of the woman's actions is her faith in Christ that has resulted in forgiveness of her sins. The great love she has shown proves that her many sins have been forgiven. Her great love is the proof of forgiveness. This is not saying the woman was forgiven because she loved greatly. Rather, her great love was the result of her forgiveness. You see, if we push the parable too far, we will miss the point. This parable is not saying that those who live a relatively good life from a social and moral standpoint inevitably love God less than those who have been converted out of a life of great depravity and sin. If that were true, one might say it is a good thing to live a degrading life prior to conversion and that one can only appreciate grace in direct proportion to the degree of immorality that grace has overcome. That is clearly not the point of the parable. The focus is on the great forgiveness of the great debt. Notice what this woman has done to merit forgiveness. What good deeds, what righteous acts has she done to earn forgiveness? She has done nothing good from what we can see. But there is no doubt her faith has resulted in action. Actions characterized by humility by hospitality, by submission, actions of honor, actions of respect, actions of love, which flow out of a faith in and a love of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who in the voluntary sacrifice of his own sinless and righteous life on the cross will graciously provide forgiveness, will cancel the debt of sin and pay the penalty she deserves to pay for her sin. On the other hand, let's not miss the last part of verse 47. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He's saying this to Simon. Jesus is saying something about the self-righteous and arrogance of religious people, to the moral and legalistic people, to the people like, like Simon He is saying Simon the Pharisee loves little and is forgiven little. Where little has been forgiven, little love is shown. 
Notice what all the religious subservices, what inviting Jesus over for dinner, what keeping the law of the Jews has earned him. It's earned him just a little forgiveness. Reminds me of a saying that D.A. Carson has of many people in our world today. I want a little gospel, please. Just $3 worth of gospel, that's all I want. Well, Simon wants just a little Jesus, please. Just three denarii of Jesus. That's all he wants. In light of the sins of Simon the Pharisee, in light of his self-righteousness, his selfishness, his self-centeredness, in light of the fact that he is a rebel against God like you and like me, and yes, like the woman who is a sinner, in light of our sin against God, what good will a little forgiveness do us? Let's see what the Scripture's perspective is on our sin. As it is written in Romans 3, Psalms 14, Psalm 53, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In case you didn't get the point, God goes on. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In comparison to the holiness of God, we fall short on every account. We are sinners. We bring nothing to Him. John 15 tells us, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. You see, the indifferent levels of sin that you and I manifest in our friendships, the morality that we manifest is insignificant compared to the awfulness of the rebellion each of us has indulged in against God. It seems in Simon the Pharisee hasn't even got to the place where he sees his own need to be forgiven of sin. And yet he has a mountain of sin that needs to be dealt with. In the end, all talk of greater or lesser amounts of gratitude or love is irrelevant when the sinner comes to realize the magnitude of his own personal debt to the Savior. Thus, this statement ultimately asks those who have little or a limited love for Jesus if they realize the magnitude of their personal sin and their need for forgiveness. I must realize how great my sin is, how huge my sin is, before I can realize that just a little forgiveness, just the things I might do, they're not going to scratch that mountain one little bit. The great forgiveness only comes from Christ. Only His payment on the cross is sufficient for my sin. For those who have not yet believed the gospel of Christ, whether they be outwardly moral and religious or morally depraved, the need is the same. To believe the gospel, to place their faith in the one who can forgive sins, to place their faith in Jesus Christ, whose sinless life and substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, for your sin and for Mike Holloway's sin, brings forgiveness and peace with God through his sovereign work of salvation. Well, what if we have come to faith in Christ? What is our responsibility now? Suppose we consider two people in our own day. Both have been converted to Christ, one from a socially and morally deprived or depraved background, 
and one from a disciplined, moral, and relatively good background. Well, no matter our background before conversion, we now ought to pray that we might see the ugliness of our own sin, whether socially disapproved ugly sins or those sins so often condemned by Jesus, sins of arrogance and sins of self-righteousness, sins that says, I'm better than somebody else, sins that counts me as more significant than you, and sins that make you think you're more important than me, or even worse than the prostitute down the street. Because we're all sinners before God. We cannot hide from him. So no matter our background, unless we are given grace to see the horror of our own sin, it is quite certain we will never grasp the full glory of, the, of God's grace for us. And we will love Jesus too little as a result. In answer to the question, who is this who even forgives sins? Asked by those at the dinner table who heard Jesus tell the story to Simon. We are reminded that forgiveness is a divine prerogative. Only God can forgive. The Pharisees and the Jews understood that. Turn back to Luke chapter 5 with me, just a couple pages towards the front of your Bible. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, the Jews understood, the teachers of the law understood, the Pharisees understood. Only God can forgive sins. How can this man say this? He's blaspheming against God, right? Verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. You know, Jesus says, okay, you don't like the fact that I said his sins are forgiven? Then I'll do the easy thing. Stand up and walk out of here. And he did. And they were seized with amazement. 
they knew they were in the presence of God himself. Back to chapter 7. Back to chapter 7. I am always struck by how God chose to display his power in such compassionate things as healing people of sicknesses, of raising widows' only sons from the dead. He could have displayed his power in a hundred different ways. He could have been the kind of Messiah they were looking for. He could have overthrown the Romans. He could have taken up residence in the king's palace. But God didn't send him to do that at this time. Jesus displays his power in loving, compassionate ways. Even with Simon, Jesus is as patient as he can be in telling him a story. Are you listening, Simon? Are you listening? Luke chapter 7, verse 19. Speaking of John the Baptist, John the Baptist is in prison at this time. John the Baptist may have been expecting the kind of conquering hero, Messiah. And here he is in prison under terrible conditions. Verse 19 of Luke 7, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What is Jesus' response? In that hour, so immediately in response to this question, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, Simon was clearly offended by Jesus, by his tolerance of this sinner, without realizing Simon's a worse sinner than she is. How about us? Do we have Jesus' attitude? How do we see those who are beneath us? You know? Do we see ourselves as wretched sinners saved by grace? See, we are to be amazed by the compassion of Jesus for sinners. We are to be filled at awe at Christ's power over sin. We are to give glory to God for the forgiveness of sin and peace with God that is provided through faith in the eternal Son of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. With a passionate love of Jesus, 
let us present our bodies, yes, even our lives, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Let us not love too little. Let us love much. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled before you. We acknowledge that you are the Almighty God. We acknowledge that it is only through the blood of Christ that we can enter into your throne room and offer prayer and even offer praise in song that is acceptable to you. For, Father, we are sinners. And we have a huge debt that we owe you. But yet, Lord, you have poured out your grace upon those who believe in you so richly that you have put our sins as far as the east is from the west away from us. It is an amazing thing that you have done. The healing power that you bring, Father, to our sinful hearts is beyond our comprehension. But I pray, Lord, that through Christ and through the work of your Holy Spirit, many here today would be drawn to salvation, to faith in Christ, and that those of us who have believed would love much in our service to you and in our service to others. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.